The first reading is from Numbers chapter 13, 26 to 14, verse 9, and then we'll skip down to chapter 14, verse 20 to 23. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Then down to Numbers 14, 20 to 23. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Then if you flick forward to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to chapter 4, verses 14. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. 
So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath my, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any, uh, any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good, good evening, good afternoon. Great to be with you. My name's Rob Forsyth. I normally hang out in the morning services uh, down the street. But it's a great pleasure to be invited from time to time to visit you here at the four o'clock at uh, Holy Trinity um, Miller's Point, the, the Garrison Church. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. We continue our series to the Hebrews. 
To, to the Hebrews, it's not so much a letter as it is a sermon or homily, a word of exhortation is the word the author uses. It's written to a congregation, or maybe we should say a synagogue, of Jews who've come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and are most likely living in Rome. Things are very difficult for them and they're becoming worn out and tired. They're facing significant pressure, even threats, from the city in which they live. There's an ominous sentence towards the end of the homily that suggests that the possibility of violence is ever present. Hebrews 12 verse 4 reads, and I quote, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of your blood. Implying that it may well come to that. And from what we do know from other sources of what did happen in Rome in the early 60s to those who were called by the populace Christianoi, Christians in our in English, it did indeed come to that in a most terrible way. The author, unknown to us, but familiar to his first readers, was a skilled expositor of the Greek scriptures, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, or Septuagint, which he uses, expounding a number of different passages to encourage, conjole, confront, to warn, even to scare his readers not to give up, no matter what. And in today's passage, you'll see he uses both fear and encouragement as he applies part of what we call Psalm 95 to their situation. But before we can understand what he's saying to them from this psalm, and therefore saying to us, we need to acquaint ourselves with a tragedy that occurred at the very foundation of the Israelite nation, well over a 1,300 years or so before the writing to the Hebrews. I'm talking about the rebellion that occurred at Kadesh Barnera. Is it on up here? You got it? Put it up. Can you see it? It's very dark. When this, when this occurred, very dark. It occurred at night. There it is. A re terrible rebellion occurred at Kadesh Barnera, which is an oasis to the south of the land of Canaan. Beersheba, Jerusalem, I read, see those places, right? And it's described in Numbers 13 and 14. The people of Israel had arrived at Kadesh Barnera on their journey from slavery in Egypt to their inheritance in the land of Canaan. In Egypt, God, the Lord God had heard their cries of distress and had remembered his promises to their ancestors and through his servant Moses had delivered them through what, in what we call the Exodus. The Lord sent a series of terrible plagues on Egypt. From when we get to this day, we get the word biblical when referring to disasters. And finally, the Israelites were free. They were led to a mountain where the Lord came down and inaugurated his covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. And he also promised them he'd give them a resting place and an inheritance in the land he would give them. Now to cut a very long story short, the Israelites find themselves on the edge of that promised land at the oasis at Kadesh Barnera. And all, then it all goes wrong. They sent a 12-man reconnaissance party north into Cana to check it out. But with the exception of, the, of two, 
the Reconnaissance Party report or that although the land is great, it would be impossible to ever go there because of the terrifying nature of the people there. They are huge. We're like grasshoppers. Don't go. On hearing this, the Israelites panic and make plans to go back to Egypt. And when Joshua, one of the reconnaissance party, urges them to trust the Lord and go ahead into the land, the people attempt to kill him with stones. The final upshot is, although Moses persuades the Lord not to go ahead with his plans to destroy them, but forgive them, the Lord declares nonetheless, to quote Numbers 14, 21, 23, which we just heard, this is the Lord speaking, nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and my signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And with the exception of those two persons, none of the people the Lord rescued from Egypt do enter the promised resting place and inheritance in the land. Not one. Israel is sent back down into the wilderness to wander for years and years and years. All that generation perished before Israel finally entered the land. That's the tragedy which occurred at the foundation of the Israelite nature to which the author of To the Hebrews appeals as he applies to the lessons of Psalm 95 to his readers in Hebrews 3 and 4. Let's turn to that now. 3 verse 7, notice two interesting things about the way he introduces the psalm he's going to talk about. By the way, the one way he never talks about scripture is the way we do talk about it, giving a book name and a verse or chapter. No, he never does that. He always does it in a rather vague way, as we'll see. Here, however, he introduces it the psalm by saying, verse 7 of chapter 3, so as the Holy Spirit says, so as the Holy Spirit says, he takes the words of the psalm where God is speaking and says that's the Holy Spirit not having spoken, is speaking, the present tense, the Holy Spirit is speaking. And this is what the Holy Spirit is speaking. As I read Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, citing Psalm 95 verse 7b to 11 in our currency. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the, in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. When your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared in my anger, that they shall never enter my rest. That psalm in, is to the author of the Hebrews referring to that event I talked about in Numbers 13 and 14, the terrible tragedy of the rebellion at Kadesh. Then the author does what we try and do here Sunday by Sunday from this rickety music stand. Take the words of scripture and apply them into, 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 into the listeners' lives. And the application of what the Holy Spirit says for the readers is clear. Do not be like those Israelites 
at Kadesh Barnera. Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. His application of the scripture he's read. See to it, brothers and sisters, he says, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As it has been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The most important sentence, I think, is verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Holding our first conviction to the end is the condition of having become a partaker of Christ. It's not the starting that matters, it's the finishing that matters. That's the warning. Not the starting that matters, it's the finishing that matters. And that's why the readers need to help each other and not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, sin lies. Its effect is to harden the believers so they become insensitive and sclerotic to, to, the, to his voice and turn away from the living God. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion at Kedesh Barnera. The author then diagnoses the heart of that failure mentioned in the psalm. What was it at its heart? Verse 16 to 19. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see they were unable to enter because of their disbelief. It is disbelief which is the culprit. That is why that generation was unable to enter the land. Disbelief. They lost their trust in the Lord God and his word and his promise and his goodness. And if you go back to the story as told in Numbers 14, it's clear that diagnosis is spot on. The Israelites simply don't believe the Lord the moment things go difficult. They don't, re they don't trust his good intentions. They don't trust his promise. When the people heard of the problems of the land, they're huge, from the 10 of the reconnaissance people, what do they do? They immediately throw in the towel and despair of the Lord. Listen to what they say. Sounds like a bunch of teenagers to me. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better if we went back to Egypt? Now that is the language of unbelief. Why is the Lord bringing us this land to kill us? What do they really think of the Lord if that's what they say? That lack of trust is why they failed to inherit the promised resting place in the land. And the section we've just been reading from verse 12 through 19 begins and ends 
with the call to see. It opens with verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It ends with verse 19. So we see they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now, the readers of the letter, or the sermon, if you like, the original readers that he's writing to, life has got hard for them, as it got hard for the Israelites. Right? In fact, for the readers, life's got hard because they're believers. It's, it's because they're the Christianoi, the Christians, that life's going worse for them. Right? As, and therefore their temptation is, is what? To some way reenact what those Israelites did because, and no longer trust the Lord's goodness or his power or his promises. Now, your life goes bad sometimes because you're a believer, right? Your life goes, goes pear-shaped or difficult. The temptation is too quickly, perhaps, when things go tough, to give up trusting the Lord. That's, that's the situation. But that unbelief will for them as it would for those original readers, as it will for us, exclude us. Exclude us from entering God's promises. In fact, the next section looks forward. If the section of unbelief looks back, as it were, the next section looks forward. From, this is a section from Hebrews 4, 1 and following, which I've called the promise is still open. See, from Hebrews 4, 1, the author makes the claim that despite the difference in time, his readers in their here and now face the same situation as the Israelites did back then. The same situation, the same promise, the same danger. So his readers had better not blow it as the Israelites blew it back then. You say, but how could the Jewish believers in Jesus in Rome in the first century face the same situation as those Israelites did at Kadesh Banara well over a thousand, twelve hundred, thirteen years, thirteen hundred years before. And think of it, how could we face the same situation, what now is three thousand years and counting after the tragedy at Kadesh Banara? How could it be the same? Because they have the same promise, by implication we have the same promise, of entering the Lord's rest as they did Back then, the same promise. That's what he says in Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short on it. The promise still stands, he says. So don't blow it this time. In fact, he goes so far to assert that his readers now have had the same good news proclaimed to them as that first generation in the wilderness. Verse two, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. Literally, he uses the Greek word to be evangelized, evangelizomai. We have been evangelized just as they have. That is, the author is identifying the promise of entering the promised land of rest in Canaan that they received as a version of the very same gospel, a very same gospel which his readers in Rome have received. The very same gospel, another version of it, another development of it, you might say. 
And the point is, it's in effect the same promise deep down, deep down the same promise. But in the, their case, it failed. Verse 2, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard had no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. And using a creative reading of scripture, and you'll find creative reading of scripture throughout the Bible, and sometimes from this very pulpit. Through using a creative reading of scripture, the author shows that despite the failure of the past generations, the promise of entering God's rest still is current, and therefore must be met with faith now. He links the words of the Psalm, they shall not enter my rest, with the words of Genesis chapter two, verse two, uh, which the author typically introduces in a roundabout way. For somewhere he has spoken <laughs> about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. That's verse four. And by doing this, by linking the two, link statements about God's rest or God resting, he shows that the offer of entering God's rest is more than the offer of entering a particular piece of real estate in the Middle East. But it's ultimately about entering God's own repose, his rest which precedes and stands outside of human history. That offer of sharing in God's rest still stands. Let me read verses four and six. For somewhere, he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, it say, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, it still remains for some to enter his rest, enter his rest. The offer is still current. Now, the author makes this point by playing with the flexibility of the reference of the word today. Now, we all know what the word today means. It means the same thing. It means at the time when it's been spoken, but what it refers to changes all the time with every day. Yesterday, today meant yesterday. Tomorrow, today will mean tomorrow, and today it means today. In fact, that's always the case with today, always the case. And therefore, it, because God said today, it must mean now, whenever the now is. And that's how he does it. Let, let me read verses 6 and 7. You'll see how he plays with this. He says, verse 6, Therefore, since it still remained for some to enter, that, to enter that rest, and since those formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. He did this when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. His point is, the psalm, spoken through David, came a long time after the crisis of Kadesh Benera, a long time actually after Israel did in fact literally finally enter the land under the leadership of Joshua. But because he says today, the today of the psalm is still, off, is still offering the promise of entering God's rest. And therefore it's not exhausted by even what Joshua achieved. That's his point in verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. 
His conclusion? Verse 9 and 10. So there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Striving ceases. Hard labour ends. As you enter into God's repose, that moment of fulfilment and peace. Now it's wonderful I, I, to actually grasp in full detail what that promise of entering God's rest means. It eludes us in its detail, but it, it, it evocatively attracts us. So therefore, what's to be done? Verse 11. Let us therefore, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that none of will perish by following their example of disobedience. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Make every effort. That is, despite the difficulties and troubles you're, fa fa you're facing, make every effort. Be firm in your trust in the promises of the Lord, no matter what. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of your blood. And the writer concludes this long section, which began in verse 7 of chapter 3. The Holy Spirit says, By speaking of the power of the words which the Holy Spirit says. What, what is the power of the words which the Holy Spirit says? The words from the psalm. Today, if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Those are the words the Holy Spirit says. Now, those words are very powerful words. Now, we often read Hebrews 4, 30, 12 to 13 as referring to any words of the Lord or even to Scripture itself. And that's fair enough. It's fair enough. But here the author is not speaking of just any passage of Scripture or Scripture itself. He's speaking of the words which the Holy Spirit is saying and which he has just expounded. Those words in the last half of what we call Psalm 95. And you can see that's the case by the way he links verse 12 to verse 11. Let me read them together, starting at verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Scary, <laughs> in a way. That word that's alive and active is the word, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. To whom I said, they shall not enter my rest. That word is deeply penetrating, he writes, able to reach in the very, very heart of a person, the very depth of a person, judges and discerns. In truth, the exposure to the word of God is exposure to God himself who speaks that word, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. That last phrase you may have recognised. It's from the opening words of our orders of service for the Lord's Supper in our church. 
Isn't that strange? We start off church when we intend to eat the Lord's Supper, reminding ourselves that nothing is hidden from the God, even our hearts. Which means we better listen very carefully to what we hear him saying as the service progresses. It's a very great way to start, I think. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Yes, the author of To the Hebrews is motivating his people with the fear of God's judgment. In fact, you'll find some of the heart, rather most confronting statements about God's judgment in this particular to the Hebrews. That's what we're going to find, amongst other things. He's saying, don't try and fool yourselves because you certainly can't fool God any more than that first generation who panicked at Kedesh Banner fooled God. You cannot fool the Holy Spirit. It is a life and death situation that you're in. You may not want to be in that life and death situation. Too bad, you're in it. The, the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea didn't want to be in a life and death situation. Too bad, they were in it. They faced a stark alternative. Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. That, that's the situation. And our, what about our situation today? Well, guess what? Today is today. Therefore, we have the same offer and the same warning today. Today, if you'll, hear your, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. However, that's not the last word I want to give you today. Nor is it the author's last word. The author balances the prospect of judgment, serious judgment, with the assistance and strengthening and grace of the one who has in every way been tested as we have. See, the original readers are going through a terrible time of testing. He tells them not to give up, but he also tells them of the one who has been tested in every way that they have, yet without sin. You might say, tested to the point of shedding of blood, yet without sin. And who now represents them, who represents us in the presence, the holy presence of God. Now we'll pick up this when we return to talking about Hebrews in June. But let me leave you with verse 14. Therefore, the very next sentence this is, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. It's not just fear, it's also hope. Therefore, make every effort to enter that rest.